Amen. Well, thank you. And um, y'all sing really well. It, it's wonderful to sit in the front row because I can actually hear you sing. Uh, so maybe this should be an encouragement to y'all to move up front because you can hear everyone else behind you. And in the years, <laughs> amen, and in the years that we've been here, uh, it's been fun to, to listen uh, how we've all gotten better singing. So praise God for that. It's, it's wonderful. Jesus is king. Amen? I, I, I could close right there. What else is there to say? Amen. Jesus is king. Jesus is king of everything. He is the king of the universe. Uh, he inaugurated his kingdom at his incarnation, his death, his life, his death, his resurrection. He reigns now in heaven and will soon return to consummate his rule here on earth. We look forward to his kingdom of perfect justice. Indeed, to be a Christian is to recognize and accept and rejoice in the kingship of Jesus. We read the Bible, and, and we are the ones who say, yes, Jesus is king. He's the rightful ruler, and that means my rightful ruler as well. I submit myself to him. I swear my allegiance to King Jesus. I will follow and obey him, and I will proclaim his glory and his rule for the rest of my life. But his kingdom is not yet fully realized here on earth. He reigns in heaven. This church is an outpost or an embassy of his kingdom. And we who follow him work to make his reign a reality in our lives. But his kingdom is not fully manifest uh, in this earth right now throughout all creation. Uh, he will come again, but in the meantime there are a number of other rulers, earthly rulers, who claim authority to govern us. What do we make of the earthly rulers in our midst while we await the return of our king? Are these earthly authorities usurpers whom we should resist and overthrow? Uh, should we seek to take them over and make them obedient to King Jesus? Do we ignore them as irrelevant compared to our higher loyalties? How do we relate to our earthly authorities? How do we honor and obey King Jesus in our stance towards Caesar? What is the relationship between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of men? Between church and state, between King Jesus and Caesar? Well, happily, the Bible does address this in several places, nowhere in more depth than in Paul's letter to the Romans. I want to say right off the bat that the letter to the Romans is not primarily about this issue. It is mostly about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications of that for those who follow him and obey him. And that's the most important thing I'll say this morning. If you're a visitor here and you don't know Jesus, this is the most important thing. He's the Son of God. And he came and lived a perfect life, and by his death he paid for the sins of his people. And if we turn from our sin and trust in him, praise God, we'll, we'll be with him in the new creation. Right? That's, the, that's the most important thing. And Paul covers that ground in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Then he begins to draw out implications of that gospel in our practical daily lives. And that's where we get to this passage in Romans 13 about civil government. So let's hear now what the Bible says about earthly government. 
Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also, you also pay taxes. Uh, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What do we learn about government from this passage? First, citizens, obey the government. Honor the government and pay your taxes. For note takers, this is the first point, obey the government. The Bible is straightforward, this is a very clear point. We are to obey the government. Paul says, be subject or be under control. Do not resist. Do good and not bad. Pay your taxes. When he says uh, one must be in subjection, the sense in the Greek is compel yourself to obey. It's almost as if he's saying, behave yourselves. Uh, we are to obey because obeying government is obeying God. There is no authority except from God. In the previous chapter, Paul had exhorted his readers to humility and peaceable living. Don't be a troublemaker. And that means don't make unnecessary trouble with the government. God made government. And King Jesus told us to obey it. If we are to obey God, obey the government he made for us. Jesus is king. The earthly government is one of his vice-regents, one of his vice-regents to execute part of his rule. You know what I said, part of his rule. I'll circle back to that later. That's why Paul says we're to obey God to avoid God's judgment, but also for the sake of conscience, because our inner moral compass should be telling us to obey the government. Obeying government is a moral requirement not a personal choice, not a preference. Paul even goes a little bit further than this. He isn't telling us to begrudgingly do the bare minimum required to escape the law's notice. He actually tells us to give respect and honor. In fact, when Paul says to pay to all what is owed, he seems to be echoing the conventional definition of justice. Uh, philosophers like Aristotle, Cicero, had defined justice as giving to each their due. And so Paul is telling us, the citizens, the people, to give government its due, to act justly towards the government. 
This is actually a bit of a rule reversal, right? We, when we think about justice, we usually think about how the government should act justly towards us. But here, Paul puts the focus on us, that we are to act justly towards the government. What is government due? The government is due our obedience, our taxes, and our respect. Now, some of this might rub Americans uh, the wrong way. We tend to grow up thinking and feeling a little differently about government. We take pride in our history as rebels and revolutionaries. Uh, we think of government as the product of a social contract. We expect that it should obey us, the voters. We get to tell what to do, and we get to say who should be in charge. And, and I'm grateful for that. What a great privilege it is that we do get to participate in a small way in our own government. I hope that those of you eligible voted in the election we just had the week before last. But Paul doesn't say, obey only the government you voted for. He doesn't say, obey the government as long as it keeps up the end of its end of your imagined social contract. He doesn't say, obey only the laws you think are wise, or constitutional, or scientific, or that respect your liberty. He doesn't say, honor the government only when your party is in power. There's no Christian case here for selective obedience. Keep in mind, in Paul's day, he was talking about the Roman Empire. Uh, this was an authoritarian, brutal, military dictatorship. It did not recognize any notion of fundamental or inherent rights. There were limited rights for adult male Roman citizens, and that was it. No one voted for emperor. The average person living under Rome's rule simply had to accept it as a fact and never had a sense of participating in its government. Even worse, this was the government that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor of Judea. Uh, Peter and Paul uh, would be later executed by the Romans. And Paul writes to the Romans to obey and give honor to this very government. Brothers and sisters, it simply doesn't matter if we think, if we agree or disagree with the laws. The Bible doesn't say that we can disobey the laws just because we may think that they are foolish or inconvenient or unscientific. Jesus commanded us to give to the same Caesar who would shortly order his own execution. Paul told us to honor the emperor who ordered persecution against Christians. Whole swaths of Roman law was based on pagan superstition, on augury, on divination, on haruspicy. That's the practice of sacrificing chickens and reading portents in the bones and the, and the entrails. And, and if Christians were supposed to obey laws founded on chicken sacrifice, we should have no problem obeying our government no matter how misguided we may think it may be. Obey, for example, the laws against pirating music and movies over the internet. Pay your taxes to the IRS. Honor the DMV. Now we know there are some limited exceptions. If you want sub-bullet here, there are some very limited exceptions. We could fill entire sermons talking about them. This really does deserve its own sermon. But 
Yes. Uh, When government commands us to do something wicked, we must resist. The Hebrew midwives did not murder the newborn children when Pharaoh told them to in Exodus chapter uh, 1. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey when Nebuchadnezzar told them to worship a false idol, Daniel chapter 3. Peter and the apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin when they commanded them to stop preaching, Acts chapter 5. So yes, there is a biblical case for some selective disobedience. But note what's common to those examples. They weren't disobeying laws because they thought the laws were dumb or inconvenient or violated a social contract. They disobeyed when the government was giving them a direct order to commit sin. I think that's probably the best case for something like, for example, the civil rights movement. When, uh, when Americans practiced civil disobedience, when they deliberately broke laws to dramatize their injustice. Christians argued that to participate willingly in legalized segregation was sinful insofar as it denied the dignity and equality of fellow human beings made in the image of God. Christians of good conscience came to believe that obeying those laws meant committing sin and injustice against others, and they could no longer obey them. This question of civil disobedience raises the question of what the ruler owes us. And this leads to our second point. Our second point. Paul does not stop at his exhortation to the people to obey the government. He also has an exhortation to the government. He actually outlines a charter for government, although it's both clever and subtle. We have to keep in mind Paul's context. Though he is a Roman citizen, as far as the Roman authorities are concerned, Paul is a member of a despised minority sect that refused to participate in Rome's pagan traditions. Refusal to participate also meant that Paul was cut off from much of civic life. A lot of civic life was rooted in or founded on the the pagan worship. And that's why the Romans looked at Jews and Christians alike as suspect and possibly traitorous. To worship, uh, to refuse to worship Rome's gods could be seen as a kind of a sedition. And indeed, a few years later, Paul would be arrested and executed by Rome. In this context, Paul could hardly write a manifesto lecturing Rome on the duties of government or telling Caesar how to do his job. He just can't do that. About a century before Paul, a famous Roman senator, Marcus Cicero, he he did, he openly opposed the Roman Empire for destroying traditional Republican liberty. And he was murdered for it. So there was no freedom of the press, no freedom of speech, and Paul had to be a little careful what he wrote. If Paul was too bold or offensive, if he called for revolution or challenged the legitimacy of the Roman government, he could not only get himself killed, he could actually incite empire-wide persecution against Jews and Christians. And so he had to step very carefully. Nonetheless, he does manage to describe what government is for, what it should and should not do. This passage, Romans 13, is on the surface primarily addressed to the people and what the people owe the government. But Paul smuggles in an outline of God's charter for earthly government. Look closely at what Paul says government should do. 
First, rulers should uphold order. Order. Rulers bear the sword to bring terror to bad conduct, to bring God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Recall in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God tells Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. God specifically says, Genesis 9, by man shall the murderer's blood be shed. He's, he's giving a commission, an authority to humans to keep the peace against violent sinners. God is delegating to us, to human beings, the authority and responsibility for keeping violent disorder in check. And here in Romans 13, Paul uses similar violent imagery, that of rulers bearing the sword. And that wasn't a metaphor. Soldiers literally bore swords. They patrolled the streets. They arrested and executed criminals. They put down rebellions and otherwise enforced order at the point of a sword. And Paul reminds us that government does this for your good. Verse 4. Order is good. It's better than its alternative. We often may worry, rightly, about government having too much power. That's a good old-fashioned American concern. And we'll talk about that in a second. But in a sense, that might be a kind of a first-world problem. There are some parts of the world where governments do not have enough power. And in a few places, there's effectively no government at all. And in those cases, what we find is the richest or most well-armed men do whatever they want, and they usually end up fighting each other. And so the alternative to order and government is not a utopia of freedom, but an anarchic war of warlords and gangs and criminals. There's no Christian case for anarchism. Governments that fail to enforce order are failing at the first and most basic duty of government. God gave government as a blessing. In the Old Testament, King David's last words included a reminder. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Second Samuel 23. While such righteous rule is rare this side of heaven, we should recognize that even the most minimally competent government is still a blessing if it manages to keep us from the hell of anarchy on this earth. But we also know that earthly governments have an almost perfect track record of abusing their power. Despite all I just said about the blessing of order, and that is true, we live in a sinful fallen world, and our governments are made up of sinful fallen people, and they tend to treat their responsibility to bear the sword and upkeep order as a blank check to do whatever they want, to uh, abuse that power to whomever they want. And this leads to our third point. A third point. Governments should govern justly. 
governments should use their power for the purpose of justice. Not just order, but justice. They are not only to uphold order, they're supposed to do so with justice. The earthly ruler is not the final authority on how they're supposed to rule. He is accountable to a higher king who demands that he rule justly. We see the call for justice in four separate places in this text. First, in verse 2, we read that those who resist will incur judgment. The word could also be translated verdict or even lawsuit. It's kind of like saying that if you resist government, you're going to get sued or you'll be given a sentence by a judge. These are legal terms. Paul, of course, means that God is the ultimate judge. I think it's clear from the context here that the passage is also saying that government, the ruler, is also a judge. A judge is one who distinguishes between right and wrong, just and unjust, and passes sentences accordingly. That means the government has the responsibility to discern what is just, and and that standard of justice is outside, above, and external to the, the ruler, the government itself. Second place we see this, verse 3, Rulers should be a terror to bad conduct, not good conduct. Again, that means rulers should distinguish between the two rather than rule arbitrarily. Rulers don't get to do whatever they want. There is a standard of right and wrong that stands outside and above the rulers. They are accountable to God who gave them that authority for using their authority rightly. Jesus is still king. He gives Caesar earthly authority for the ministry of justice and order. Jesus, not Caesar, defines what that is, what justice is. Recall Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. John 19. Third place, verse 4. Paul describes the government as God's avenger, God's avenger to punish wrongdoing. Interestingly, the Greek word here for avenger, ektikos, means costumed superhero in a shared fictional universe. Just kidding. The Avenger here is actually something closer to the opposite of Marvel's Avengers. The uh, the caped crusaders in today's movies are usually vigilantes acting outside the law without authorization. When Paul calls the earthly rulers God's Avenger, he's actually saying that they do in fact have God's authorization to execute justice. The Greek word here, seriously this time, means public advocate or prosecutor or legal representative. It's it's somebody who pursues justice on behalf of someone else. Government stands in God's stead as his advocate and representative for the purpose of justice and order. Paul calls the government one, God's minister for this purpose. To get the full flavor of this, we have to go back to Romans 12, one chapter earlier, just before our passage. Paul writes there, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, in chapter 12, Paul is speaking to individuals. And he tells them not to avenge themselves. God will take vengeance both times using the same root word. 
Then a few verses later, he says, government is the avenger. And so uh, what we see is God will take vengeance, and on this earth, he's delegated that vengeance to the institution of government. Fourth place in this passage, we see justice. In verse 7, Paul tells us, pay to all what is owed. And again, while there he's addressing uh, citizens, uh, and by, uh, by extension the common citizen, he's affirming the conventional definition of justice, as I mentioned earlier. Coming on the heels of other reminders in this passage that he gives uh, about the role of government in upholding justice, this seems another subtle way um, of underlining the point. Rulers should give to all what they are due. Rulers should rule justly. In all four places, we see that rulers are supposed to use their power for justice and order. That government's authority is not a plenary grant of discretionary power that the ruler may use to do whatever they want. King Jesus defined the charter for earthly rulers, and he's given them a specific, limited charge, uphold order and justice. Just as there's no Christian case for anarchy, there is also no Christian case for unfettered rule, for tyranny, for totalitarianism. We should expect our governments, even in this sinful fallen world, to strive for justice. It is good and right for us to yearn for just rule, even from our earthly governments, to work for justice, to pray for justice, and to even demand justice of our rulers. That's what they're there for. If the government does not do this, it's failing to be a government. The duty of a government to govern justly is so important, it seems to be the defining trait of what makes a government a government. Augustine of Hippo famously asked, justice removed? And what are kingdoms but great bands of robbers? If a government systematically flouts or ignores justice, deliberately and persistently rules unjustly on purpose as a matter of policy, a government that is totalitarian or genocidal, it is not a government. It is a criminal conspiracy pretending to be a government. The ruler is not supposed to uphold mere order, brute order, order at all costs, the order of tyranny and oppression. It should be a just order. Roman historian Tacitus famously criticized his own empire for its brutality. After one particular campaign in which the Romans wiped out entire cities, he said Rome had made a desert and called it peace. A desert is peaceful because it's lifeless. And that is not the order the Bible calls for. It calls for life-sustaining, just peace, peace and justice. Again, Augustine says, in comparison with the peace of the just, the peace of the unjust is not worthy to be called peace at all. True justice, true peace go together, and you cannot have the one without the other. So we should obey the government, and the government should uphold order and justice. Simple. No room for confusion or error 
misinterpretation or disagreement, right? Of course not. What we see here is just the broadest outlines of a biblical political theology. And within these outlines, there's a thousand questions of application and nuance. What more can we say about civil disobedience? Is there a right to revolt? How should Christians respond to tyranny? What about civil war? These are great questions, and we don't have time for any of them. I think the Bible does address some of these questions, some more than others, but most of them take us beyond this particular passage of Scripture. Let's just uh, tackle three questions, three questions about Christians and government relevant to our day that often emerge from reflection on passages like this. First, how do we think about political liberty? Political liberty. Note that in this passage, Paul does not use the language of liberty or freedom, and you don't find it often in the, in the Bible at all. Biblically, government seems to have a broader mandate than what Americans may feel comfortable with, a mandate to uphold justice and order. Perhaps we Americans would like to add liberty in there, but it's not there. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say government must uphold your liberty. Now, I can make the case that government should understand justice to include some degree of liberty. You may remember a couple of months ago, we looked at Genesis 2.15, God's mandate to tend and keep the garden as a commission for all of our creative labor. And in tending and keeping, it seems a principle of wisdom to give order and structure, and also to stand back and allow liberty for life to flourish. I think that's, I think that's, that's a true principle of wisdom. However, I would characterize that as a practical application of a biblical principle of wisdom rather than a straightforward biblical command. You see the difference? In some things, God has given absolutely clear commands. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. In other things, God has given us principles of wisdom sowing and reaping, tending and keeping. And he's left it to us to understand or discern how best to apply and interpret these in different circumstances as circumstances warrant. I think that may be the case with political liberty. I affirm liberty as wise and even consistent with a biblical understanding of justice. But I think it's important to hold American conceptions of liberty a little more loosely than the paramount, clear, imperative that governments must pursue justice and order. A government that does not respect our liberty is unwise, and in our case, violating its own rules. But a government that repeatedly flouts justice and order is not a government. Different standards. Second question or application. This passage tells us how we should begin to think about policing and warfare. Policing and warfare, bearing the sword, using force. Many of us here this morning have worked for the United States government or a local or state government in positions related to law enforcement or national security. We're just up the road from Fort Belvoir, just down the road from the Pentagon. The local police station is five minutes down, the, down Franconi Road. 
Uh, and this text is our commission. Paul affirms the ruler bears the sword. The government uses force. We live in a fallen world with violent people, and the ruler sometimes must use force to keep us safe. But note that when it does, it must do so with the ultimate purpose of vindicating and restoring peace and justice. We don't use force casually. We don't use it any more than necessary. The government spends money to field police, authorized to use force to keep order and apprehend criminals. That's entirely legitimate and good. And when the police function as intended, they are a great blessing to us. But when, people, when police use excessive force, force in any way that does not lead to peace or justice, we rightly call that police brutality. And police brutality is real. It's unjust. In our society, it is quite often racist. It's important for Christians to condemn police brutality and affirm the basic legitimacy and necessity of policing as an institution. Similarly with warfare. Some Christians throughout history have felt themselves personally unable to participate in war, and we can respect that conscientious choice. But I think it's clear from this passage in Scripture that government doesn't have that choice. And Christians who work for the government don't have that choice. Uh, the government has not only the, uh, uh, the option, but the duty, the responsibility to use force to defend its people from aggression. Uh, we all know the news. Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year, an act of criminal lawlessness, blatant aggression. Ukrainians are fighting a just and a necessary war in their own self-defense, and they are right to do so. It's important for a government to defend its people. And it's, it's, it's permissible, I think wise, for Ukraine to seek allies. Yet even as Ukraine and its allies seek to defeat Russian aggression, we must remember that the ultimate goal of such a war is not to kill as many bad guys as possible. That's not the goal of any war. The goal is to restore and vindicate justice and order. That should be the goal in any just war. We should, in fact, mourn that killing is at all necessary for the ultimate goal of restored justice. God reminds us in Ezekiel 33, 11, that he does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, and neither should we. That's why we have rules for how we fight war, what kind of weapons we use. That's why it's extremely important and wise for our government to not provoke a wider war than necessary. And that's why after a war, it is extremely important to win the peace, that is to say, to invest in lasting conditions of peace and justice and order. That's why we fight any war, is to restore peace and justice. Third and finally, and possibly most complicated, what is the relationship between the church and the state? This deserves its own sermon. Throughout church history, many theologians, using this passage of scripture, have given some version of this answer. They say, Christians should use earthly government as an extension of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is ruler over all, 
So it stands to reason that our earthly governments should honor him by ruling in his name. And that means, according to this line of argument, that in some sense our laws should be Christian laws, in some sense. That we should use the government to propagate Jesus' message. We should seek to build a Christian commonwealth, a Christian nation. Some theologians have pointed to the Old Testament, to Israel, to the role the monarchy played in supporting the priesthood as a kind of a model for us. And look, you can find lots of this in our favorite Reformation theologians. Martin Luther offered a version of this. John Calvin did. My favorite, Augustine, he also said some of this stuff, that uh, we should use the civil government to directly support or even enforce Christianity. If the government is, after all, to punish evil and reward good, as Romans 13 clearly says, maybe we should punish blasphemy. Maybe we should criminalize apostasy, as the Massachusetts Bay Colony did in the 17th century. Maybe we should use force to make people Christians. I probably don't need to spend a lot of time explaining that this turned out to be a bad idea. Most of us here understand something about religious freedom and disestablishment. We know what our Constitution says, the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We can maybe recite from history examples of church-state alliances that turned out badly, the Spanish Inquisition, or the reign of Queen Mary of England in the 16th century. I would like to emphasize, it's not just a bad idea, and it's not just a constitutional doctrine of disestablishment. I think it's a foolish idea. And in the Bible, we see almost nothing in support of this idea and lots and lots against this idea. Disestablishment is actually a biblical doctrine before it was a constitutional doctrine. It was Christians who wrote the First Amendment. Jesus, King Jesus, specifically told us more or less not to do this when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. We might add, yet. It will be someday. He gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, Matthew 16, which uh, signified the church's authority, the church's authority, not Caesar's, the church's authority to mediate his reign on earth, which is an authority the civil government may not usurp. When Paul, in Romans 13, talks about using a sword to enforce order, recall that Jesus tells his apostles to put their swords away, Matthew 26. And he tells the apostles to make disciples. These are two separate, distinct activities. And King Jesus made two separate, distinct institutions, church and state, with different responsibilities, different authorities, different jurisdictions. The state exists to uphold earthly justice and order. The church exists to teach and preach in Jesus' name, to baptize and make disciples, to be the body of Christ and a display of his glory. It's important to keep these things distinct. Jesus said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. There's no example in Scripture of coerced belief, of making disciples by force. There's actually no example of using Caesar's power to do the church's job nor of using the church's power to do Caesar's job. 
Some of you know our friend Jonathan Lehman from across town. He's argued powerfully, God has not authorized the state to regulate worship of himself. He gave that job to the church. That's what we do. We have to jealously guard the church's prerogative to to be the exclusive agent of speaking in Jesus' name. We have to protect the gospel's purity, the church's independence. If we let Caesar start to do our job and teach and preach in Jesus' name, there's no guarantee of what kind of gospel he's going to preach. And there's plenty of history that says he'll preach his own gospel. If we look only at Romans 13, isolated from context, you might think it's commanding the ruler to enforce Christianity. But we always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is internally coherent. Romans 13 cannot contradict John 18, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We Baptists, in fact, we're here at Franconia Baptist Church. We Baptists made this a special theological distinctive. Two and a half centuries ago, we Baptists were at the receiving end of state-sponsored persecution from state church alliances all around the world from Catholic Germany, Anglican England, uh, the Congregationalist New England, and right here in Episcopalian Virginia. We were harassed, fined, and imprisoned for preaching the gospel without a license from the government. Everywhere we went, no one liked us. Uh, And they used the combined powers of church and state to kick us around. And that is precisely why early Baptist theologians, Isaac Bacchus, John Leland, understood better than anyone else in Christendom the importance of keeping separate jurisdictions of church and state. It's true that some have misunderstood what this means, keeping church and state distinct. It doesn't mean that we have to embrace a state-enforced secularism, that we can't appeal to our religion and public debate. It doesn't mean that we can't vote on the basis of our values. None of that is an implication of what I'm saying. It simply means King Jesus made two institutions for two different ends and that we should not mix and mingle. The clear biblical principle seems to be that we need to recognize and keep the jurisdictions of church and state distinct. And how exactly we apply that, where we draw those lines, will be a matter of wisdom. As we close, if all this sounds complicated, You're not alone. Theologians have grappled with these nuances for thousands of years. Happily, God speaks clearly and simply on the most important things in Scripture. Jesus is king. And there are no other kings like him or equal to him. His kingdom is coming. In the meantime, he has given us the blessing of earthly government to keep the peace and execute justice as far as possible in this fallen world. We are to obey the government, honor the government, pay your taxes. The government should uphold order and execute justice. Perhaps you look around and think this this vision of justice and peace seems fanciful. Perhaps you're painfully aware of the reign of injustice throughout the world the painful reality of violence and disorder. All this talk of earthly rulers reigning in peace and justice might sound disconnected from reality. The actual record 
may seem pretty dismal. And you wouldn't be wrong. Justice and peace are more honored in the breach. Even in a relatively peaceful place like our country, that God can still be a place of great injustice through corruption, fraud, abuse of power. That is why it is good to remember, again, King David's last words. When one rules justly over men, ruling the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like sun shining forth in a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. We have a king who rules like that. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your throne is established on justice and righteousness. We know that you love justice. We ask that you would give us that love as well, that we would, we would yearn for it, that we would pray for it, that we would work for justice and peace in this world. But Lord, we pray for Jesus' kingdom. We, we pray that you would come quickly, Lord, because we, we yearn to live there in that kingdom of perfect justice and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.